Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. Our season on Guyana is officially over, although we will continue to bring updates on that story. Today, I'm bringing you an episode from the excellent Manga Bay podcast because they have a season going right now about another region that is experiencing a big oil boom and dealing with a lot of contradictions around conservation and oil development and climate policy, all of these things. This season that they're doing on the Congo is a fascinating look at what's happening there. This is the first episode in that season. They are putting out episodes weekly right now. I believe there are two or three out already, so go check that out. Manga Bay actually has two podcasts. This one comes from the Manga Bay Explorers podcast. It's a more occasional podcast that takes deep dives into regions of great environmental interest like the Congo. So they'll do these multi-part series where they take a close-up look at an area that is developing in a particular way. Folks should also check out their flagship show, The Manga Bay Newscast, which I recently appeared on to talk about journalism, podcasting, climate action, and drilled. I'll stick links to both of those in the show notes. Check them out, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Congo Basin contains the world's second largest rainforest, just shy of 440 million acres. Put another way, you could fit the nation of Belize inside it roughly 77 times. The basin itself is even larger, covering 1.4 million square miles, or a bit less than half the size of Australia. This serves as the drainage basin for the second longest river in the world, the Congo. This region of the world, like others we've covered on this podcast, has a long history of conflict, political, social, and environmental challenges set against a backdrop of peerless biodiversity, countless communities that depend on it, and unique environmental services and value consequential for the global fight against biodiversity loss and climate change. 
I'm Mike DiGirolamo. This is Mongabay Explores, a podcast series about our world's unique places, species, and the people working to save them. You're listening to the inaugural episode of our fourth season, Mongabay Explores the Congo Basin. To call it difficult to summarize everything you need to know about the history of the Congo Basin and the environmental challenges it faces would be an understatement. This series intends to cover many of them, but as with any place in the world, it is always changing, and there is always more to say. We introduce some of these challenges in this episode by speaking with two experts who have studied or worked and lived in the Congo Basin. We begin by speaking with Adams Kasinga, who is himself Congolese, and grew up in the Democratic Republic of Congo until the First Congo War of 1996-97, when he left as a refugee to South Africa. Today, back in the DRC, he is the founder of an anti-wildlife trafficking organization, Conserve Congo. I speak with him about the changes he's witnessed in the Congo Basin, what drives deforestation there, and what solutions he says work for keeping the forest intact. For this episode, I also interviewed Joe Ison, who is the executive director of Rainforest Foundation UK, to get his perspective on the same issues. A key theme covered in this episode and this podcast season is balancing the need to develop critical human infrastructure necessary not just for people to survive but thrive with the need to conserve the valuable environmental services that the Congo provides for local communities and the world. It goes without saying, these are not easy questions to answer, but one thing both interviewees emphasized is that what the Congo Basin provides to the world benefits us all. Also covered in this episode is the DRC's decision to open up protected areas and peatlands for oil development in some of the most carbon-rich soils on the planet, the ensuing tension from this, and why Adams and others say international support is needed if we are to keep this carbon in the ground. But so far, that support just isn't there. Between 2000 and 2014, the Congo Basin Rainforest lost an area of forest larger than the country of Bangladesh, according to a study by researchers at the University of Maryland published in 2018. At that time, the study said that for those 15 years, over 80% of this deforestation was due to small-scale clearing for subsistence agriculture, mostly by hand, rather than industrial-scale methods. I asked Adams Kasinga what he's seen change in the region and what's driving deforestation now. Yeah, Adams Kasinga, and uh, I represent a nonprofit called Conserve Congo, based in Kinshasa, with a satellite office in Goma. Currently, well, first of all, when you speak about the Congo Basin Forest, this is a forest. Since we were young, we were told that it was the second lung of humanity after uh, the other line being the Amazon. But when you look at it today, it's probably going to be the heart of humanity uh, since the Amazon is facing a lot of uh, challenges. But uh, also we do face so many challenges and uh, one of them being uh, the influx of expatriates, mainly from Asia, trying to do logging, mining, and uh, other things such as poaching have really drastically affected it. What we conceived and perceived as a very little development in our country was literally what protected our forests. 
the lack of uh, a road network, the lack of uh, infrastructure that we complained about, I think is what is protecting the remainder of uh, the forest currently. But so much has really changed and it goes to show that climate change is a reality. Even uh, the climate has uh, drastically changed and we do believe that's because of uh, the deforestation that is ongoing. Not so much like other countries in the Congo Basin, but the DRC is doing fairly good when it comes to deforestation. However, the little that is there still needs to be protected and therefore we stand firmly against um, this new trend that is happening. But the analysis that this deforestation is mostly done by subsistence farming, according to Joe Eisen, is overly simplistic and doesn't account for other underlying factors. Joe Eisen, uh, Executive Director of the Rainforest Foundation UK. We've always felt that the assessments of the drivers of deforestation in the Congo Basin have been overly simplistic. Um, uh, and have essentially been based on snapshots of what is driving deforestation rather than determining what are the underlying, dri underlying drivers. Um, a lot of what is, is, is deemed to be deforestation is actually a system of shifting cultivation in what's known as the rural complex. So this is essentially shifting farming practices that happen in the vicinity of villages. In the meantime, some of the, the key drivers, such as industrial logging and infrastructure, particularly roads and, and en energy transport infrastructure, um, that are really driving deforestation in these areas, um, have gone essentially unnoticed by, by policymakers in many respects. So that means that the, the policy prescriptions have been around targeting these shifting cultivation practices, whereas the, the other drivers, uh, that kind of create these arteries into into primary forest areas have been ignored. I would say that the underlying drives of deforestation in those concessions are ultimately uh, things like uh, logging roads, um, which which uh, are there supposedly to to facilitate access for selecting selective logging of of timber, but in actual fact create arteries into the forest, which can create a, a cascade of deforestation whereby other settlers or other forms of, of uh, extractive uses of the forest can happen. And this can happen over a period of, say, 10, 15 years before you start to see the, the actual impacts. This concept isn't new and is something we've covered extensively in past seasons of Mongabe Explorers in regions such as New Guinea, where instances of logging roads give rise to further deforestation by essentially improving access to forested areas. Sometimes these roads are built with the promise of jobs or human infrastructure for locals, but often can be met with human rights abuses and little or no benefit to local populations. There's a, there's a system of resource governance in the DRC that prevails, which often uh, serves the personal enrichment of, of political elites and, and business people. Uh, rather than the public good, and particularly local and indigenous communities that live in these areas. So often these resource concessions are characterized by human rights impacts, other other social problems, and very little of the uh, trickle-down economics that, 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 that are supposed to come with these forms of, of, of development. 
While Adams says the DRC is doing well in regard to deforestation, the region has seen a surge of extractive industries and has a significant overlap of forest cover with extractive concessions, many of which are for mining and oil and gas. A quarter of the intact forest in Central Africa lies within these concessions, and much of it is in the DRC. So I asked Adams who he thinks is benefiting from this extraction, and who is losing from it. His answer? Everyone is losing. Yeah, well, straightforward. I think everybody, every inhabitant of uh, the, Cong the Congo Basin forest is losing, because the forest is not all that we have. The forest is all that we are. The forest represents our home. The forest represents our chemists. The forest represents the playground for our children. It represents our hardware stores. It represents all, all, our, all our existence. And the people doing this is mainly government because fauna and flora in the DRC belongs to the state. And therefore, the state has got the, the last word. And in the recent uh, past, like 10, 20 years ago, lots of permits have been issued uh, to exploit uh, this forest. And we do not know whether there is a proper follow-up. But if you heard about uh, the last seizure, I believe it was in Vietnam and uh, Turkey, and afterwards there was also Singapore with the ivory seizures. All of these items were found in containers containing uh, products from the forest. You know, uh, it's like a, it becomes an overlap crime from logging into wildlife trafficking. So you can see that wildlife trafficking, it goes hand in glove with other crimes. And in this case, uh, fauna and flora go hand in glove. However, even though it is the state that causes the most uh, problems, but it's the poor masses of people that eventually uh, bear the brunt of the consequences. But if everyone loses then, why is it being done? According to the World Bank, the Democratic Republic of Congo is among one of the five poorest nations in the world. As of 2022, over 60% of the country was living on less than $2.15 per day. But it also has vast quantities of natural resources, such as cobalt and copper, timber, oil and gas, diamonds, and gold. In fact, it has 3.5 million metric tons of cobalt reserves, or 70% of the world's supply. The reasons behind the nation not reaping the wealth of these resources are complex and many, with contributing factors such as the First and Second Congo Wars that kept the region in conflict for many years. Today, the DRC has among the highest population growth rates of any nation in the world. According to the World Factbook, the DRC has an estimated population of around 112 million and is on a trajectory to reach 200 million people by 2050. It is not unreasonable to expect that a nation with a pressing need for critical human infrastructure would want to develop it, as other wealthier nations already have. So I asked Adams what the biggest challenges were to develop this infrastructure while protecting the vast biodiversity contained in the Congo Basin. Well, uh, me being a firm believer in peaceful cohabitation, in harmony 
between humans and nature. I would beg to differ a little bit that development that is paramount to human existence would be a stumbling block from the existence and the thriving of the forest. I do believe that, in fact, for us to be able to protect and look after this gem that we've got and that the world needs, people, especially people living inside and nearby surrounding these forests, have got to be taken care of. Like I mentioned earlier, the forest represents food, medicine, shelter, and otherwise to all of us. And therefore, for us to be able to leverage the pressure that the local population is applying on this forest, we've got to have alternatives which are going to look after these humans while the forest strives for itself. Forests, then, and, I, and I've heard a lot of people talking about uh, reforestation, whereby they're going to be planting a million trees. A forest is not maintained by humans. We all know that. The forest that we currently have is not because we put it there. And therefore, as humans, we cannot create another forest. The forest has got to be left alone so that it can look after itself. And uh, for it to be, we need to leave it undisturbed. And for us to be able to do that, we've got to find solutions. And that involves healthcare, um, facilities where people can learn, job creation, welfare, and other socioeconomic uh, uh, activities. And we are lucky because the DRC is not just a little country. The forests that we currently have represent less than 13% of our landmass. According to the Nagoya Treaty, we needed, I think, about 17% of protected areas. And at the moment, we only have 13. And this 13 represents a huge uh, piece of land, like you mentioned earlier, which is bigger than the size of Bangladesh. So there is still enough space for people to carry out other activities which are paramount for the existence and while living in the forest, um, a virgin ground where uh, biodiversity and ecosystems can thrive without interference of humans. Six of the nine countries that are generally considered a part of the Congo Basin make up the majority of what we know as the Congo Rainforest, which, as stated earlier, is the second largest rainforest in the world. The DRC contains the largest area of it at 107 million hectares, or 264 million acres. Another way to think about this is that it is roughly one-eighth the size of the United States. It is also 60% of Central Africa's lowland forest. Simply put, it's a massive amount of tropical rainforest, containing well-known fauna such as elephants, mountain gorillas, okapis, bonobos, and chimpanzees. The okapi, a brilliant striped hooved animal reminiscent of a zebra meets giraffe, is found only in the DRC. It is also one of only two members of the family Giraffidae, the other being the giraffe. The DRC is, as Adams points out, a megadiverse country, sitting in the top 20 most biodiverse countries on the planet. However, despite its vast natural beauty, he says the region isn't seen as attractive for researchers or leisure tourism, and that a climate of fear has inhibited or obscured further species discovery. Yeah, the DRC is one of the foremost biodiverse countries in the world. I believe the other three countries involve Indonesia, uh, Brazil, and others. 
And that goes to tell you, it's not by mistake that we've got more than half of the Congo Basin uh, forest. The Congo on its own, we probably are the only country in Africa with endemic fauna and flora, which is specific only to the DRC. And I'm going to name the Okapi. We've got the Bonobo, we've got um, the Congolese peacock, and most recently the Lesula, which is a primate with very humanoid uh, features. And I can guarantee you that we are currently working on a project which is to highlight certain species which haven't been documented before. And because the DRC does not represent an attraction necessarily for researchers and other leisure tourism, therefore we do have a lot of other species which haven't been discovered because of uh, that fear that the DRC represents only negative things and it obscures all the positive other aspect of our lives, which we have, including in fauna and flora. We do have uh, the rosewood in quantum. So we have a variety of flora because flora is made out of fauna and fauna is made out of flora. This is the habitat of the fauna and therefore it's got to accommodate every other species. So the DRC is a true gem and a paradise on Earth when it comes to biodiversity. Joe points out that tens of millions of Congolese live in these forested regions. Like you rightly said, it's 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 a huge biodiversity reserve, and I'm I, I know there are many species of fauna and flora that are, that are still yet to be discovered in 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 many parts of the DRC. Uh, for example, uh, some of the keystone species there include the bonobo, uh, which is which is indigenous um, to and 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 native to the DRC. Uh, it's arguably one of our closest cousins to the human species. You also have things like the okapi, which is an incredibly unique and charismatic animal that's only 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 found in the forests of DRC. Um, but what's often overlooked is that it also provides home sustenance, medicine, shelter, etc., for tens of millions of rural Congolese. Um, and these are some of the most impoverished, um, disenfranchised people on earth. Um, and unfortunately, the kinds of policies which are directed at the Congo Basin too often overlook their needs and their rights. Another thing about the Congo Basin is that while being the second largest rainforest in the world, it seemingly doesn't get as much attention as one might think it should. Certainly not as much as the world's largest rainforest, the Amazon does. There are a few key differences between the two that Joe and Adams highlight. The Congo Basin is a carbon sink, whereas the Amazon has been deforested to the point that it is now a net carbon emitter. Surely, yes, uh, I think the, the Congo Basin has for a long time been overlooked, although there are signs that the international community uh, is, is, is looking more seriously at the region. Um, I think the Congo Basin probably has more intact forest landscapes um, that, that need conserving in many respects. Uh, it's also probably the last of the great rainforests that actually serves as a carbon sink rather than a carbon source. And that, that really underlines the urgency with which we need to address uh, the threats to it. The trees in the Congo Basin notably are larger than the Amazon for a variety of reasons, mostly due to large mammals that create more corridors, prohibiting smaller, denser trees from propagating. This creates less dense, but larger trees that are primed for carbon sequestration. 
for the mere fact that the diversity that we've got in terms of fauna within the Congo Basin, which does not necessarily exist in, uh, in the Amazon, especially having large mammals such as the elephants and other larger mammals, it is an advantage because they become like the gardeners of the forest. They eat from a variety of trees, tree barks, and seeds, and therefore they are able to create corridors within the forest while traveling hundreds of kilometers every day, dispersing all these seeds and allowing the forest to regenerate. Whereas when you go to the Amazon, uh, they do not have large mammals in there, and therefore it limits the regeneration of that forest. When you come to the Congo Basin Forest, what is going to astonish you the most is the size of the trees that we've got. And I have learned from research that these mammals and the primates that we've got, like the chimps and the gorillas, they're very selective because if they ate from a certain tree, they'll make sure that that tree uh, continues to exist and therefore they'll disperse it across uh, the landscape. And that's what makes the Congo Basin a powerhouse for uh, uh, carbon sequestration and uh, oxygen emission. The value of these forests, Adams argues, can't even be fully quantified. But according to the International Monetary Fund, the carbon capture services that the presence of just one African forest elephant provides is equal to $1.75 million. And this isn't even including the potential economic benefits from tourism, which Adams say are crucial to growing the livelihoods of locals. This, along with other ecosystem services, are at the heart of building concrete incentives and income streams for locals to manage and protect these forest regions. One such way Adams highlights is through agroforestry projects. I have recently learned that the Amazon's biggest threat is agricultural activity. And that's because they're putting it at a very highly commercial and profitable uh, levels. Whereas I do believe that in the DRC, particularly, agricultural activity will be one of the solutions that once well applied, it could save the forest. Because we are not trying to be commercial farmers. We just want to be uh, subsistence farmers. And therefore, we have got over 63 million hectares of arable land. So we do not really need to touch the forest for us to survive. And I believe that um, by so doing, it is an, an economic activity that could save the forest. Also, uh, an elephant, for instance, in its lifetime is going to yield up to over a, a million dollars in its existence, just via tourism. Whereas if we kill it, it can yield slightly less than $100,000. And therefore, looking after our fauna and our flora is more of an economic boon to our country, to our economy, job creation, and subsistence at the same time. And therefore, I do believe that everybody engaging in activities that are um, around the preservation and the protection of our forests is going to be a big plus for our economy. From his perspective, Joe also says community-managed forests are the way forward for development in the region, particularly if renewable energy can be incorporated. We think that there's an alternative uh, development model in, in DRC that is thus far untapped. Uh, one of the things that we support 
uh, as an organization is the development of of community forests in the country now the model of community forest in the drc is is highly innovative in many ways it allows communities to own and manage uh, forests themselves uh, up to uh, 50,000 hectares and in perpetuity um, they can be managed according to their their custom um, and and according to multiple different uses um, and linked to that instead of promoting oil development uh, which which we think is essentially unviable in the DRC um, we think there is a huge untapped potential in in uh, renewable energy um, and local renewable energy production in places like DRC and there's been various studies that have been done on this it's just a question of trying to get the donor community and the investment community to look beyond these um, kind of simplistic notion of, of, of what development could be in the country. However, the Congo Basin is not as it once was. Two major wars in the late 90s going into the early 2000s ravaged the region, decimating wildlife populations and animals that locals relied on culturally and economically. While Adams is the head of an anti-wildlife trafficking agency, typically making sure animals aren't poached or hunted from the environment illegally, I asked him if, given this brutal history, it was reasonable to expect locals not to hunt is subsistence farming or agroecology alone enough for locals to thrive? Mm. That's a good one. Uh, it's not reasonable to ask people now to hunt. And that's because we as conservationists have been preaching the wrong gospel. We are preaching the gospel of the whip and we're not having the gospel of the alternative. Um, animal husbandry is something which exists for centuries uh, in this world, and I do not understand why in the DRC, we just keep telling people not to eat wildlife, but we cannot give them wildlife to rear. Whereas we've got enough space, enough, uh, enough land for grazing, we've got enough land for agricultural activity. I don't think it is fair. And while we do, sometimes I feel guilty when I bring in my humane side, I feel guilty about just using the whip. I feel like I'm just doing the sheriff work and the humanity in me is not there. But then again, what do we do? And that's the reason why we've got this agroforestry uh, program. One of the innovative features of community forests in the DRC is that it allows communities to manage their forests according to multiple usages. So, for example, that can be agroforestry, it can be conservation, it can be payment for ecosystem services. Um, however, we need to take a long-term vision for this. I mean, we're starting from 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 perspective where communities tend to be very isolated, where there are very limited economic opportunities. So we need to look at a kind of macro level scale where those opportunities exist, how we can create the infrastructure, how we can support access to markets, how we can support the, the growth of associate organizations that, that, that can help local producers to, to scale up production, um, that can negotiate with, with with buyers of their products, for example. So um, yes, absolutely. But this, this, is, this is not a short-term endeavor. We really need to take a generational look at this. As alluded to earlier in this podcast, international support for the Congo Basin's ecosystem services hasn't really materialized, resulting in broken promises. 
By the same token, if that money does come, Adams points out that there are questions regarding how it will be used and whether it will actually be effective. He points to an example, which we plan to cover on the next episode of this podcast, of protected areas that may preserve wildlife, but still result in little benefit for the people that live in or around these areas. In 2007, two male silverbacks were killed by what has been described as rebel forces in Virunga National Park, and they reportedly ate them, according to conservationists. Adams says this is partly out of frustration. The agroforestry in reality is for subsistence. It's just so that people can have something to eat today. But the long run, in the long run, what is the state or the international uh, community having in store for these people? Because the forest that we're trying to preserve is not just a positive aspect for the DRC alone. We are literally uh, assisting the entire planet to breathe. And therefore, I still think that the world owes the people of the Congo Basin something in return. And unfortunately, since we cannot measure this and be able to say it's going to be a situation of a tick for tat, it becomes difficult. We can only uh, rely on the humanity of the, the race of, of the people across the globe, and which hasn't been coming forth. Uh, from what I gather from the political aspect, I recently heard the Minister for Environment, Her Excellency uh, Ms. Ave Bazaiba, mentioning that at one of the conferences, there was a pledge for the international community to be given 100 billion per year to the DRC. And for the last 15 years, we have not received a cent from that. From a political point of view, I think she makes a very valid point. But then we still wonder, should that money get into uh, government coffers? Will it really do the work that it's supposed to be doing? Or will it just be a political slogan? And therefore, I believe that if people are afraid that government cannot manage these funds properly, there are projects at grassroots level which can be established and people can benefit from. We've got all these large uh, national parks, but when you go into it, into them, there is very little to envy because the people still crouch in sheer poverty. What is supposed to be their natural heritage is definitely benefiting other people from elsewhere. And when you see situations such as what happened in 2005 with the two silverbacks which were killed in Virunga, and in 2012, with 12 copies being murdered, it's because of that outrage that people are trying to send a message. And sometimes they come across as violent people, but it's not violence. I think it's more of a frustration. It is no stretch to say that communities that live in and around these protected areas are in an extremely difficult situation, which is compounded further by another looming factor, the vast amount of peatlands in them and in the DRC. Peat is also not a new topic on Mangabe Explorers, but for those unfamiliar, peatlands are waterlogged terrestrial ecosystems with lots and lots of undecomposed plant material. When plant matter dies and decomposes, it releases carbon into the atmosphere. And because peatlands are so rich in this plant matter that hasn't fully broken down, that means it is particularly rich in carbon. 
In the Congo Basin, there are 29 billion metric tons of it, equivalent to the amount of carbon from fossil fuels the world burns in three years. Two-thirds of all of that is in the DRC alone. However, the DRC government has auctioned off the rights to explore for oil in 27 blocks across the country, which partly are on these peatlands, as well as rainforest and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Scientists have been critical of this move for the threat it poses to these carbon-rich lands. But the environmental minister of the DRC, whose presence has been noted at COP27 and the CBD conferences last year, said to Mongabay in an email, the invaluable ecosystem service that our peatlands and our forests render to the planet cannot remain free forever to the detriment of our population's aspiration for well-being. This seemingly contradicts a previous statement of hers where she criticized the lack of DRC peatland protection in the final draft of the COP27 declaration. Now we are asking ourselves, what are we doing here at these negotiations if they will remove the very important element to fight against the warming of the planet? We want Ask Demand to reinsert the role of rainforests and peatlands in the cover decision. I reached out to a representative of Yves Bezaiba for a comment regarding this, but did not receive a response by the time of this recording. I asked both Adams and Joe's opinions on this. How is the government both at once declaring the need to protect these ecosystems, yet at the same time openly giving them over to extractive industries? How are they squaring this move, and particularly, how are communities receiving it? Communities have got no choice. Communities need jobs. Communities need uh, socioeconomic uh, balance. And therefore, and I'm going to be very honest with you, communities are very welcoming these petroleum companies to come and uh, do the extraction because uh, environmental, uh, tourism organizations have failed them and they feel like wherever their bread is going to be battered from, that's where they are. I mean, it's just clear like that. Well, some of us being conservationists, we know the implication. We know the consequences of what's going to happen. For instance, with the peatlands that we have, a lot of people trying to do agricultural activities are being attracted towards trying to farm in these areas. And you and I know very well that should they disturb these peatlands, there's going to be dire consequences. These are some of the results of millions and millions of years to build up, like to store this carbon in there. And within a few weeks or a few months, this could explode and release that carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And there's going to be dire consequences. But nobody really cares. And it seems like it seems like we as humans are the type of people that want to act uh, under pressure. It's only when it's about to explode that everybody uh, flocks in from left, right, and center and try to fix things. But now that we're still preaching the gospel of being proactive, nobody's uh, is saying a word. It should be noted that while Adams says that some communities welcome this development, researchers have visited 14 villages in at least four of these blocks and found villagers didn't even know they had been auctioned. In particular, Block 22, which overlaps with peatlands in Equator province, said they didn't know about the government's plans. One villager said, If this project were for the good of the population, it could have discussed it with us in advance. They shouldn't put blocks in areas we live in without having notified us beforehand. 
From Joe's perspective, the world can't afford any more development of this kind, but at the same time acknowledges the argument that it's not affordable anywhere in places like the United States or the United Kingdom, which still continue right now, laying the groundwork for more fossil fuel development, such as the massive Willow Project in Alaska. I think we could say that the DRC internationally is promoting itself uh, as, as, as it terms a solutions country uh, to the climate and biodiversity crises. Um, at the same time, it is uh, auctioning uh, these 27 oil blocks and three gas blocks, which, as you say, overlap, overlap with, with carbon-rich peatlands, protected areas, um, and the lands of thousands of local and indigenous communities. And I think the two things are obviously somewhat incompatible. Um, I mean, there's one train of thought that the, the DRC government is is uh, heightening the risks of, uh, you know, talking up the potential of oil development as well as logging development in the country as a means to extract more money from the international community to support its its forest conservation efforts. But absolutely, I, you know, the, the global carbon budget, uh, the DRC environment and local communities cannot afford any more reckless uh, industrial developments in 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 Congo basin forests um i mean there's there's also an argument and it's not a wrong argument where 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 people see uh, the likes of the united kingdom of norway of of the united states for example continuing to expand their own fossil fuel developments in their own regions um which which uh, which absolutely should not be happening still. Um, but at the same time, governance conditions in someone like DRC does, does, does not exist to enable, uh, to, to ensure that this can be done in an environmentally sound and socially just manner. So money is needed, but in what form, how, and from whom? This is a much trickier question to answer. Adam says that if the government benefits, then in some form, so do the people it represents. However, he believes there is more of a role to play from the international donor and NGO community that has not lived up to its promises. If our government can benefit, definitely somewhere, somehow, our local population is going to benefit. Perhaps not all of us, but at least some of us could benefit from it. And. Uh, there is still this aspect which is not politically controlled. And this aspect is like the direct investments that uh, donors and other funders across the globe are making to change the status quo, the current status quo of uh, the, the Congo Basin Forest. And we don't see that. We have a situation where most people take from it than they put in it. And like when you come to the ground and you wonder, all these international NGOs that you've heard of, what have they done locally to assist the local population? To them, it's just business as usual. It's a job and everybody is, is trying to protect what feeds them. But unfortunately, talk, talk and no action helps nobody but the person who's talking. Joe doesn't have as much faith in the current governance structures for money to be used effectively. I think there is certainly a role for, for the international community 
uh, to mobilize far greater uh, funding for, for conservation in DRC and, and the wider uh, Congo Basin region. At the same time, unless you address the underlying governance conditions um, about who receives the money, what the conditionality is attached to that funding, then there's very little hope of that money ever trickling down to to, to forest communities that need it. Um, and that's why, as an organization, we promote things like community forests, things like the implementation of the new Indigenous Peoples Law in Congo, which can go a long way to ensuring that those benefits can actually be felt at, at the global level, I mean, at the community level, sorry. What kinds of governance issues is Joe referring to here? In short, political corruption, particularly of the local kind. Well, as an organization, we worked in, in the DRC for, for well over 20 years, and, and a consistent kind of hallmark of, of things like the logging industry and, and, and other resource extraction uh, industries is, is the close links between political nepotism um, and political patronage with these resource management sectors. So you'll often find that the high-level politicians or, or high-level military officials would have vested interests, uh, whether direct or third-party interests, in these concessions, which dominates the kind of direction of natural resource governance in the DRC. You know, for example, in the recent auction of 27 uh, oil, and, um, oil blocks in the DRC, it's it's comes to light that there is uh, you know a various sort of under the table deals happening uh, between uh, some of the, the interested parties, which gives them access to certain blocks. So unless you you really look at the underlying drivers of this, then you cannot solve the problem. Corruption, Adams says, also extends into the international community. He points out that Africa already receives considerable aid money, but with less than transparent oversight and an obvious lack of true accountability, and that the only real solution is to give lands back to local communities. Yeah, so in my own terminology, corruption is the greasy mechanism for the trafficking machinery, be it of fauna, flora, or human. And therefore, the work that we do indirectly or directly also fights corruption. And corruption is one of the ills that hinders good governance. So when corruption is uh, subtracted from the picture, we are going at least at 75% good governance. Unfortunately, at gra grassroots level, we haven't seen any improvement in that. But also, it's not just promoted locally, even internationally. The huge amounts of aid that flocks into Africa, and particularly in these projects to preserve uh, the Congo Basin Forest, who's accountable for that? Do we have any accountability for that? The beautiful projects and reports that we receive written in impeccable English and French that we all read. Have you ever read anybody saying, oh, we're sorry, this year we didn't do it right because we think we need to change the methodology. Everybody claims to be a successful model, but what are we having as a result is extinction. It's uh, more trafficking. And therefore, I think somewhere, somehow, it's either we're not being 
honest with, our, with ourselves or something is wrong. And I do believe that the remedy to this, we've got to bring back the forest to the rightful owners, which are the local communities. How to do that exactly is a topic of debate amongst Congo Basin nations. A resolution to acknowledge and address the injustices faced by indigenous peoples and local communities, otherwise referred to as IPLCs, was recently attempted in Rwanda last year with the Africa Protected Areas Congress, which resulted in the Kigali Call to Action. The reception to this was mixed, with some indigenous leaders saying it did not go far enough in addressing injustices faced by IPLCs, but that it was a step in the right direction. I asked Joe what his opinion was, and whether this was a way forward in bringing land back to its original owners. He says putting the rhetoric into practice is going to be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's obviously a step in the right direction. Um, and I think more generally, it was it was a fairly peripheral view, maybe not so long ago, um, but it's, it seems to be more widely accepted by policymakers today, is that entrusting forests to the people that, that live and depend on them happens to be to be the best way to defend them. So this is this is very much the narrative now at the international level. The challenge is to translate this international rhetoric into coherent policies and implementation in places like the DRC. So I think there's a, a lot of work to do from the DRC government, from its international partners, to make sure that uh, things like community forests, things like the new Indigenous Peoples Law, have sufficient political and financial support to make them a mainstream forest management option in the country. The announcement for plans of the historic Loss and Damage Fund from last year's COP27 conference in Cairo raises more questions about how money will be used in places such as the Congo Basin. The purpose of this fund, purportedly, would be to provide compensation to vulnerable nations dealing with the impacts of climate change. But where is the rubber meeting the road, exactly? Brandon Wu, director of policy and campaigns at Action Aid USA, said to me in an email that those details are in the process of being determined, but currently, since the fund doesn't yet exist, there isn't any money pledged yet, nor is there any structure created that would determine how money would be allocated to recipient countries like, potentially, Congo Basin countries. Who is eligible for this money? It's up for debate this year, but Wu said to me, it is almost certain that Congo Basin countries would be eligible. But then it's a matter of how much money will be made available, how it will be allocated, and how and through what institutions it will be dispersed. Though this fund does not yet exist, Adams had not even heard of its announcement. Is it damage and uh, loss and damage? The loss and damage fund. So I have never heard of it, honestly. Adams highlighted something else that needs to change, and that's the visibility of African conservationists themselves, which are often downplayed or entirely absent from international discussion on Congo Basin conservation. Since 1884, each time Africa is being talked about, Africans are never there. And the conservation sphere has not been an isolated case. Even to date, as I'm speaking to you, there are conferences across the globe and they're talking about Congo Basin forests. You will not see voices such as ourselves there because people think that they can decide for other people and just benefit. And I think that's where everything went wrong. Our forefathers were great conservationists. They preserved both fauna and flora. That's the reason why in the early 1900s, 
when colonialists came, they found everything was intact. We had our own traditional methods of conserving species. And the moment humans, which are the main actors in the natural environment, were detached and separated from nature, we started experiencing problems. You cannot separate humans from nature and claim that all is going to be all right. And what we live in today is a consequence of that. Until we address such issues, we're going to be turning in circles. Does the world owe the people of the Congo Basin something? Joe agrees that it does, but emphasizes the what and how of that is harder to determine. One thing he points out that probably isn't discussed very often is the concept of incentivizing governance reform and human rights progress through conditional debt relief. Yes, I do believe the world does owe the Congo Basin something, both, both in terms of the colonial uh, legacy in the country, as well as the services that the Congo Basin provides uh, for the regional and, and global climate. The big question is what and how. Um, now, we are very skeptical of things like carbon and increasingly things like biodiversity markets to provide those kinds of solutions because, number one, they don't tend to address actual climate change. Um, and number two, the, the conditions, the governance conditions do not exist uh, for them to, to, to ensure lasting and meaningful benefits for, for forests and their inhabitants. Um, I think one of the lesser explored options for mobilizing that finance is, is, is uh, something such as uh, Article 6.8 of, of the Paris rulebook on, on non-market-based approaches to climate change. And um, I think there's also you know, something in looking at, at conditional debt relief that, that, for example, deeply indebted countries such as the DRC uh, could... could um, uh, be forgiven certain debt relief if certain governance reforms are undertaken, if if certain advances are made on on human rights, on on the rights of local and indigenous communities, for example. While there are other forms of conservation models at play in the Congo Basin, such as ecotourism, Adam says the answer isn't necessarily the model, but who is implementing those models and who is trusted with resources. It is often not as Adams says, someone with a black face, or those who actually live in these regions, citing the racial bias in society, which still continues to ignore the influence and expertise of African conservationists. So ecotourism is not a new thing. Ecotourism has always existed. And I think we were referring to it as research, simply research. It's just a terminology that has changed. And, um, I don't think it's the word ecotourism that is benefiting uh, the Gorilla Project. I think there are so many aspects that benefit Virunga as a national park. First of all is the easy accessibility. Virunga is one, if not the only national park that is accessible. Second, Virunga is the oldest national park on the African continent, being, having been created in 1925. And when you look at uh, the influence that uh, Mr. Emmanuel de Merode, who's royalty, you know, uh, so he's got capacities to mobilize funding from left, right, and center. There are people who trust him and who believe in him more than they believe other people. And therefore, it has made it easier 
for him to be able to lobby all this support around Virunga. And the same can be done elsewhere. But I'm going to give you the example. Uh, I don't know, and I'm going to ask you another question, a very straightforward question. Would you have a list of 10 famous African conservationists that you know, if I asked you to say them off on top of your head, a household name that you'd mention on CNN and everybody says, yeah, I know him just like we know David Attenborough and the others. You will not have 10, you, you'll be lucky to have five. And that's because some people still believe that a black face such as mine does not fit the profile of an average conservationist. And those are some of the myths that we're trying to change. Some people would still believe that if they gave me a 10 million funding, they don't trust that we're going to be accountable. But that's far from the truth because they have not tried it. It hasn't been tried. It's just, um, I think it's misconception which emanate from stereotyping the whole nation. And those are some of the myths that we are about to be breaking in this journey that we've uh, undertaken. And uh, I do believe that models are just way too many. And those models are very much available and workable. The only problem is, is the people. Anything done for us without us is against us. Joe emphasizes that the Congo Basin, like other areas we've covered, is at a crossroads where the choices made today will have significant consequences, both for the people that live there and for the planet. The key factor, Joe believes, is in scaling up indigenous rights. I would say that the Congo Basin is a critical juncture. On the one hand, we have this ongoing auction of, of uh, 27 oil blocks in the country. Uh, we have the, the threat of a possible lifting of the logging moratorium in the DRC. Both of these things which threaten potentially tens of millions of hectares of forests and the livelihoods of millions of people. At the same time, uh, we're starting to get some traction on international kind of recognition that, that, that entrusting forests to people that live and depend on them is the best way to protect them. And also some, and this is kind of filtering down to a local level, such as through the passage of the community forest law and the new indigenous peoples law in the DRC. So we're really at a crossroads of, of where we want to go from here. And uh, the big challenge for us now is how to scale up land rights uh, in the DRC uh, in a meaningful way. Thus far, approximately 3 million hectares is under the control of local and indigenous communities. That's about the size of Belgium. The DRC is vast. So I think we all need to rally around a very long-term vision um, that's supporting, that, that kind of scaling up these community-based approaches um, is something we, we, just, we just need to do. Um, so we need to kind of rally behind this and, 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 and take that forward. Adam says, as the heart of the world, the people of the Congo Basin need a seat at the table in conservation discussions. But the protection of the Congo rainforest is ultimately everyone's responsibility. Uh, you know, growing up and uh, having been born in this area, we've always been told that uh, our country had a second lung of humanity. I can tell the whole world right now that our forest is no longer a lung. It has become a heart. Whether people like it or not, the Congo Basin Forest is there 
and uh, there are people living in there. We cannot be talking about the forest without mentioning the people who live in it. And we need consideration. We need to sit at the table and negotiate with everyone else because this is the service that is most important for human existence on this planet. It provides us with all the services that we need as the locals. And therefore, if we're going to let it be at the service of humanity, humanity has got to show some humanity and give us something in return. And that is compassion. Before anything turns material, it comes from the heart. And we do not need to negotiate on this because anybody who, uh, like yourself, for instance, somebody with a sound mind, you really understand the services in terms of precipitation, in terms of you're going to tell somebody, say in England where I am right now, and tell them that the rain that you see here comes from the Congo forest. And I do not have to be a scientist to know that. Now, I don't know how to put in uh, everyday words so that the world can understand that. And that to preserve and protect this forest is not just a Congolese um, responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. And if you cannot be there physically, at least try and do something so that you can support those who are on the forefront in protecting and preserving this uh, gem. I do believe that it's a blessing and this blessing needs to be taken care of. And unfortunately, us at our own level, we can't. We need the contribution and efforts from everyone. I'd like to thank Adams Kasinga and Joe Eisen for speaking with me for this episode of Mongabe Explores the Congo Basin. This was episode one. I'm your host, Mikey Girolamo. Editorial support for this episode was provided by Tana Guse and Eric Hoffner. The script was written by myself. The soundscape heard in the intro and outro of this episode was recorded in Invindo National Park by Susanna Burkolova, Walter Mami, Tatiana Sachivi, and Serge Ekazama. The recorders would like to acknowledge Masaha and Invindo National Park. If you enjoyed this episode of Manga Bay Explorers and you want to support us, please tell a friend about this podcast series. Word of mouth is the best way to help expand our reach and keep growing. You can also support us by heading to patreon.com at p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash mongabay where you can donate to help us cover production costs and hosting fees for our podcast content stay tuned for our next episode on fortress conservation in the congo basin due out in may keep up with all of mongabay's news on social media platforms facebook mastodon linkedin and instagram where our handle is at mongabay or on twitter at mongabay.org we'll be back soon with another episode of mongabay explorers